This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for June 26, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 40 through 42. The message is by Father Eric Coombs. It says in the bulletin that I'm preaching, and you can be glad that I swapped with Eric because I was going to preach on sin. I heard that Eric's sermon was wonderful. I did not hear Eric's sermon, so I'm not testifying that I heard that it was wonderful. But I, people kept coming out saying it was so wonderful. So I didn't want you to miss it, and I didn't want to miss it. So I've asked him to preach. I did want to tell you a little bit about what went on in California, because it's pretty, pretty, pretty exciting. Um, I talked with Art, and there's two statistics I want to talk to you about. Do you all remember when there was a question as to whether we would be the first or the second diocese recognized in the United States? Well, guess what? There's 22 now. Can you believe that in the last year? There are 22. And there are three more that are getting ready to join and one other that is coming in from another area of the Anglican Church. One has been dispersed. It's no longer with us. And it's the Diocese of the Holy Spirit that Bishop Guernsey had. You all remember Bishop Guernsey was the um, bishop that came here and uh, priested me. Wonderful man, wonderful, wonderful man. And I'm going to miss him as much as I love Bishop Roger. I'm going to miss him because he's one of those bishops that calls you six times a year, if you're one of his clergy, takes about 15 minutes, prays with you, sees how you're doing and how you're feeling and how you're doing spiritually. And it was just so meaningful when those phone calls would come. So now the exciting part of it, and I can't remember the name of the diocese, can you, Eric? I, I don't remember it. It's a strange name for a diocese. At any rate, he has been elected bishop of the diocese that Pittsburgh and Virginia are both a part of. And they're very fortunate to have Mid-Atlantic, that's right. They're very fortunate to have him. And it's, it's going to be a huge job for him, but if anybody can do it, he can. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about were baptisms. Now, baptisms kind of tell the temperature of a church. And I'll tell you, we have a good temperature. 987 adults over 30 were baptized. Now, somebody asked me when I said that, was it a first baptism? I don't know why they would ask that question, but if anybody has that question, let me assure you it was a first baptism. 424 were baptized between the ages of 16 and 30. 1,647 were baptized between the age of baby, infant, to 16. Now, my math is bad, but according to my bad math, that's 3,058 souls that have been baptized into Jesus Christ. And I think for that, we just 
need to give a loud amen and alleluia. I am so excited about that. The church is growing. And the church is growing in a way that you can obviously see. Jesus Christ is blessing what it's doing. And that in itself is so, so exciting. And I just wanted to share that with you. And so now I will turn it over to my tag team buddy here. We just made this switch this morning, Jack. So the, uh, you're, you were correct on the slides and we changed things around on you. I was ordained an Anglican priest barely seven weeks ago, but for many years before that, I served as a minister in the free church tradition. I preached my first sermon in a small rural Baptist church near Charleston, West Virginia, while I was still a senior in high school nearly 45 years ago. In case you're trying to do the math in your head, <laughs> I'll just tell you that I recently turned 58 and even more recently turned 61. <clears throat> I'm grateful for the opportunity I have to preach here this morning. And again, in two weeks, I think I'm on the schedule while Father Ron is on vacation. I've been told that there is no law carved in stone that requires it, but it is traditional to take as the text for the sermon one or more of the lectionary readings for the day, most notably the gospel portion. As a neophyte in the Anglican communion, I respect the traditions. They are, in fact, a large part of what drew me to this communion in the first place. I certainly don't want a reputation as a boat rocker early in my ministry. But I have to be honest with you. Did you hear the gospel reading this morning? <laughs> in case it didn't stir you at the core of your being when it was first read, and I mean no disrespect, let me read it again. It's very brief. Just three verses from the end of Matthew 10. Jesus said, Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, None of these will lose their reward. Now, far be it, a very far be it from me to disparage any portion of the Holy Scriptures, but come on, by anybody's measure, that is a difficult passage to try to preach on. For one thing, it is the very end of a much longer speech or sermon. Scholars like to call them discourses by Jesus. To be asked to preach from this passage is like being handed a piece of paper and told, Follow this recipe, but when you read what's on the paper, all it says is, blend all ingredients together, pour into a prepared dish, and bake at 350 degrees for 30 minutes. Those are important instructions, but they're virtually worthless without all the other important stuff that should have come first. The same is true here. It is virtually impossible to make sense of these words from Jesus without hearing them as the conclusion to a longer sermon. So let's take a look at that longer sermon. First of all, what it's about. To determine that, we have to go back to where the sermon begins, and that is in verse 5 of Matthew 10. Prior to that, the first four verses of Matthew 10, he sets the stage for the sermon by telling us that Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority for their ministry, and then he lists the names of the 12. And then beginning with verse 5, here's what Matthew records. 
These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And that phrase, good news, translates the very same word that does our word gospel. So when you hear good news and gospel, it's saying exactly the same thing. That's really all he has to say in this particular sermon about the content of the disciples' proclamation. The rest of the sermon puts more emphasis on what they are to do than on what they are to say and on how they are to react and respond when what they do gets them in trouble. We know that the verses in today's gospel reading are the conclusion of this sermon because they are immediately followed in the first verse of the next chapter, 11, by these words. Now when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and proclaim his message in their cities. And what was his message? The same one he instructed his disciples to preach, the good news or the gospel of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are used interchangeably in the gospels. Only Matthew uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven means the same. We know this is true. We know that this was the message that Jesus preached because Mark, at the beginning of his gospel, describes Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry from its very outset this way. Now Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel, and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. These are the very first words spoken by Jesus in his public ministry as recorded by Mark. With these words, Jesus set the tone of his ministry for the next three years. And almost everybody now agrees that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven as Matthew has it, was the single most important theme in all of Jesus' preaching and teaching. So, this morning's gospel reading is the conclusion of a sermon preached by Jesus which takes up all of Matthew 10, and the subject of that sermon is some kind of instruction regarding the kingdom of God. But we need to have a better idea of what that instruction consisted of if we're going to understand how today's gospel reading fits into it and brings it to a conclusion. Before we can do that, however, we need to ask what Jesus meant when he used the term kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. It will help if we remember that Jesus was a Jew, his 12 disciples, later called apostles, were also Jews. And their task, according to the first verses of Matthew 10, was to take the message about the kingdom of God, first of all, to the Jews. Now, Jesus would later, after his resurrection, after his message had been rejected by the Jews, he would later expand the commission to preach the gospel to the Samaritans and the Gentiles, the whole world, in fact. But at the beginning of his instruction to his disciples, the focus was on his people and their people, the Jewish community. First century Jews were looking for a king. It had been 500 years since they had been an independent nation with their own king. The Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, promised that one day a king would come, a descendant of King David, and he would restore Israel to a position among the nations which they had enjoyed before they were conquered and subjugated, first by Babylonia and then by Medo-Persia and then by Greece and at the time of Matthew and Jesus by Rome. Since the Jews 
viewed themselves as the people of God and their king as the representative of God, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel was, to their way of thinking, the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth. And they were ready for it. They were tired of being tramped down and walked over. They were ready for somebody anointed by God, and that's what the word Messiah means, anointed by God, to come on the scene and overthrow their oppressors so that their king could be seated on his throne once again. They were ready for some pomp and pageantry. They were tired of waiting. Onto this stage steps Jesus, claiming to be the king, which the prophets had promised, having the temerity, the audacity, to announce that the kingdom had indeed come, that he was in fact the king, and on top of everything, to dare to call this announcement good news. And it was good news, because Jesus was talking not about a political power, but about a personal relationship with God. His kingdom, he would later say, is not of this world. When he spoke about the kingdom of God, he meant the control and authority that God wants to exercise within and among all of those who surrender their lives to him. But to the Jews who were looking for a Messiah who would lead a revolution to overthrow Rome and a king who would exercise political power from the throne of David, what Jesus was saying was anything but good news. It was crazy talk, and they would have none of it. We know what happened. Jesus' announcement of the good news of the kingdom so infuriated the Jewish leaders that their protests finally persuaded Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Palestine, to put him to death like a common criminal. Now, if Jesus had been the deluded pretender his detractors made him out to be, his crucifixion should have been the end of it. Instead, it was only the beginning. After his death and under the leadership of the very man to whom he addressed the sermon in Matthew 10, from which today's gospel reading is taken, under their leadership, the message of the good news of the kingdom of God began to spread like wildfire. Beyond the Jewish community, beyond Jerusalem to Judea and there to the uttermost parts of the earth. But it was not easy. It never has been and it never will be. Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom and he ended up on a cross. His 12 apostles preached the gospel of the kingdom and every one of them except John suffered the death of a martyr. And I doubt that that kind of faith took any of them by surprise since Jesus had given them ample warning. In fact, right here in Matthew 10, in the verses leading up to today's gospel reading, Jesus said, See, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and flog you in the synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. How can this be? How can a message of hope and deliverance, of peace and forgiveness in relationship with God and his people, how can a message like that provoke so much animosity and opposition? Well, Paul gives us some insight into this when he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, If our gospel is hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Because our adversary, the God of this world, has blinded so many minds, very often the most effective proclamation of the gospel is not with words at all, but with works. That's why in Matthew 10, right after Jesus told his disciples to preach the good news that the kingdom of God had come, he then told them how to do it with deeds, not words. Matthew 10, 7, as you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. With those words, Jesus was making it clear that preaching the good news of the kingdom involves demonstration as much as proclamation. It's the same thing that St. Francis of Assisi meant when he said, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. He didn't mean that the gospel can be preached in all its fullness without using words at all. Rather, he meant that sometimes words are inadequate unless people see the reality of what we say being worked out in what we do. And Jesus illustrated this truth very well in his own ministry. Here's the way John puts it in a little story in chapter 4 of his gospel. Let me just read the story, if you will. Then Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover. And they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon the fever left him. The father realized that this was the very hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now, if you've heard that story before, and if you're like me, you've probably assumed that the primary point of the story was to illustrate the man's great faith. After all, he had walked the 20 miles from Capernaum to Cana in order to tell Jesus of his need. Then, after Jesus told him that his son was healed, he believed it was so, and he walked the 20 miles home, confident that his son had indeed been made whole. But there's another way to look at that story. Maybe the real point of the story is not so much the man's faith as it is Jesus' kindness and compassion. After all, when the official meets Jesus, he has no interest at all in what Jesus is saying. He doesn't want to hear a sermon about the kingdom of God. His son is sick, he has heard that Jesus does works of power, and he hopes that Jesus will direct some of that power toward his dying son. As John tells the story, it seems that at first... Jesus is inclined to lecture the man a bit. He says something like, You people are all alike. You look 